aboard the MBIT Podcast with Seamus Medan. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Embit Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Adam Pritzker. As a serial entrepreneur and philanthropist, Adam founded General Assembly back in 2010, an education company focused on providing professional development skills and teaching the most in-demand technology, business, and design skills. Since its launch in 2011, General Assembly has trained over 1 million students at campuses across four continents. Now at his new company, Assembled Brands Group, Adam partners with emerging direct-to-consumer companies to provide working capital, business insights, and a professional network to help scale their businesses. In addition to Assembled Brands, Adam is also the founding partner of Wholestack, an investment vehicle that helps support early-stage funds in many emerging domains. Not to mention, he also studied at Columbia University, where he received his bachelor's in anthropology, and today he's a trustee at the university. So first off, thank you, Adam, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get into it with you. I'm, I'm impressed with your work. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Great to have this conversation. But yeah, let's start off with sharing your journey with the audience. I know out of college, you applied to a job at IDEO, which for those of you in the audience who may not know, was famous for designing the Apple mouse. They put a buttercup over a golf ball. And you also applied to business school. Could you walk the audience through your journey from Columbia to then exploring the business space? Yeah, absolutely. So at Columbia, I studied social anthropology, I think they call it now. It was just in the anthropology department, so social and cultural anthropology, and uh, didn't really know if there were any applications for, for that kind of course of study. I, I was not in the math department or doing engineering, which is probably the most popular now, but I, I did learn to think critically and to learn to learn, which I think are both incredibly important skills. And I thought an interesting place to apply that would be a place like IDEA, which does what's called human-centered design. So really designing products and services for people, starting with the customer and, and people first. And as I sought to learn more about that and applying to the job, I felt like there wasn't really a place to learn those things, kind of learning by doing, if you will, by building companies. And so... That's really the inspiration for the idea behind General Assembly. And I just started meeting people in downtown New York. And you got to remember, it was like 2009, 2010. And it was like a, a bomb had gone off because of the, the Great Recession. So there, there were a bunch of young people kind of working on different projects in the Flatiron District. And that's where I met my partners to actually go and start General Assembly. And our first employee was a, a woman by the name of Mimi Chun, who I still work with on things like the States Project and Future Now and a number of other things, who interviewed me at IDEO. So I really wanted IDEO in the DNA of General Assembly. And I think, I think we like accomplished that. Like, I think General Assembly really became a brand and a brand that people loved and a place where people wanted to learn. And so it was really out of my own need and desire that the company was created alongside my partners, Jake and Brad and Matt. Definitely. And before we get too deep into your journey building General Assembly, how did you first get interested or, or were inspired in the business space? I've always been interested in business. I, I definitely like stand on the shoulders of giants. My parents are 
entrepreneurial. My grandparents and cousins are entrepreneurial. So I really looked at them and, and had an amazing example of, of what it meant to, to build a business. So I'd really always been interested in entrepreneurship and feeling like the ability to create something out of nothing, if that makes sense. And again, just unbelievably lucky to have been able to see examples of that in the real world at a very young age. And I would say, you know, I was always interested as well in like anticipating problems and trying to identify opportunities to make an impact, kind of like what you described and not really being a passive investor who makes investments, but really like rolling up my sleeves and building and partnering with the team kind of every step of the way and empowering them to do their best work and making their own contributions. Because I'm a real believer in, in serving others. And if you serve others and seek to make an impact, I mean, that will eventually come back to you. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned building something from nothing. I know like here at the podcast for the first like few months, I pretty much had like no listeners around eight listeners, five of them were my family. And now I've been able to grow it quite a bit, still working on growing it even more. But it definitely is a truly unreal experience. It's like any other, which is why I like joining startups and participating in stars. One of the stars I'm working at right now is called Valley. And we're really trying to democratize the way outbound marketing emails are sent and stuff like that. But working closely with a small team to build something out of nothing is truly an unreal experience. It is. And as you mentioned, like you have to start somewhere, right? So you, you've got to make a little bit of a mess in the beginning and just kind of take that first step. I thought Warren Buffett's letter this year, the, the Berkshire Hathaway letter, I'm not, not sure if you had the opportunity to read it, but it was all about his mistakes. And I read somewhere that mistake is the, mo the, the word he has used most in his annual letters. Which is interesting, right? Yeah. And I, I think you've got to be willing to take that risk and 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 to make a mistake. And obviously, you know, it takes an enormous amount of privilege to be able to do that. And hope hope more people kind of take that to heart and are willing to take risks because we're in a time of incredible change, and that change presents just extraordinary opportunities. Yeah, definitely. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, you studied at Columbia before going on to IDEO. What was your experience at Columbia? And then how did it have an impact on you? Yeah, so I never actually ended up working at IDEO, I ended up recruiting people from IDEO. But my experience at Columbia, it was it was an amazing experience. I mean, again, like, just learning kind of a set of values that have always stuck with me or having those kind of driven home. Some of those values being like leading with questions and learning to learn and building lifelong friendships. And it's not obvious what incredible leverage those things have in, I feel like people now kind of slag on the idea of liberal arts education. And I just couldn't disagree with that more. Like, Learning to think critically and learning to think independently is what allows the kind of or, or what creates the opportunity to think a little bit differently, which is what is required to do anything of note or build anything or write anything that's kind of a different take or a different variant on kind of mainstream thinking, if you will. So that that was my real kind of takeaway, which I know is kind of a, a broad thing, but that's, that was just, it, Columbia was an incredible experience. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I know one of the things that I've come to learn, you mentioned liberal arts, is understanding and learning about other sectors outside of your own can help bring new perspectives into your own work. And like you mentioned, enable that critical thinking component. But you, So you studied anthropology and philosophy with an interest of that consumer behavior at Columbia. How did your studies in those areas with help with the building of your own company? Yeah, so I mean, from... I think from the philosophical side, I, I would say really just kind of thinking about, and, and I'm sorry if this is fundamental, but like just these values of kind of weaving a seamless web of trust and hard work and learning to learn and making decisions as though a smart reporter is going to write a cover story about it and and, and learning those, those values. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with this concept of eudaimonia, which is Aristotle. And he talked about these kind of fundamental virtues of prudence and justice and temperance and fortitude. So those ideas were really interesting. And I think the later philosophers, just kind of the idea that the world around us is built by people. And if that's true, it means we can change it, right? And so from a philosophical perspective, I mean, those those kind of ideas really influenced me a lot to kind of on the first hand, some things that never change. And on the other hand, how everything is always changing. And from an anthropological point of view, I mean, the joke we used to make was like, you know, sociology is about us. Anthropology is about them. That is the old school way of thinking about anthropology. The kind of new school way of thinking about anthropology is like looking at the world to learn more about ourselves. And that to me has been extremely advantageous to building businesses. It's just looking around the world, seeing how other people do things, what kind of businesses are being built in China or in India or in other places that are kind of leapfrogging us in terms of software or technology. And so those are the ways that I think philosophy and anthropology really kind of impacted me most. Yeah, and people is definitely one of those synonymous things we've seen when I've interviewed a lot of entrepreneurs. It truly is all about the people. Like one of the people I interviewed a few weeks ago was named Brian Scudamore. He was wearing his hat all about people. And he actually built a $700 million franchise business from collecting junk. It's called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I'm sure you've heard of it, OTE brands. Um, So yeah, it's absolutely insane. He actually had the opportunity to have, I believe, Shaq invest in his business. But just starting off from ground zero, he started off with just $1,000 and building up that team of people is pretty inspiring. But now that we get back to General Assembly, you guys started as a co-working space. How did you then transform it into an educational business? Yeah, that's a a great question. Um, So we did initially start as a co-working space a couple blocks away from WeWork, which is is a whole nother story, as you know. But really, it was kind of opening this space and having a bird's eye view of the companies that were utilizing GA's resources. We very quickly identified this kind of overlapping skills gap that their organizations needed to bridge in order to remain competitive. And that's when we really repositioned GA as an education company focused on training workers and most in-demand skills like technology, data, design, and business and that that was really it's the human centered design approach, as I said before, right? Like really looking at what customers wanted and what customers needed and building that product for them and turning classes into courses and courses into an enterprise education product that would help place people in the workforce. And that really took off. 
Yeah. What were some of the ways starting off from those early stages that you were able to scale the business to an eventual half a billion dollar or $412.5 million exit? And then what was your experience like at that exit? I guess the obvious kind of piece of it is always like, oh, what are what are your gross margins? What are the unit economics of the business? The the, the kind of fundamental business aspect. But I think that piece of it is and kind of writing that out and the planning and the modeling is kind of the, the more obvious piece of it. I think the less obvious piece of it is really how culture does eat strategy. And, you know, if you build these trusting relationships and you work incredibly hard and you make the right judgments, and if there's a really simple thing of like emphasizing people and coming together around a common vision and strategy and plan and having performance goals and really prizing complete and accurate information and really making decisions one step at a time and respecting each other and having fun and enjoying the journey. I know that sounds like, again, I'm sorry if it's a little fundamental and maybe even a little trite or corny, but like that is how great things are built. And it's easy to kind of get lost in the sauce of wanting success and of defining success as kind of an external validating thing that's like a dollar sign. And just as I've gotten older and built more, I've really just learned the importance of these emphasis on kind of service and values and process and people. Definitely. And one of the things I noticed, like when I chatted and when I had the opportunity to chat with Mark Cuban on the podcast, I asked him about like bringing on a co-founder and how that can be essential to the success of a business, especially when they play to your strengths. For example, for him, that was Dr. Alex Oshmyansky. He's a great salesperson. He's Dr. Alex Oshmyansky is a doctor for Cost Plus Drugs. At General Assembly, you actually had four co-founders, yourself, Matthew Breimer, Jake Schwartz, and Brad. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. but um, I believe also the name of the drummer of third eye blind, but I could be wrong on that. Ah, interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure what SEO has done there. Anyway, yeah, sorry. Yeah, exactly. So they, according to a report by First Round Capital, they actually found that the most common number of co-founders for a hyper-growth startups is like two. So how did you manage having four different founders and divide and conquer the tasks effectively? Having four co-founders is hard. There's, there's no question about that. But we were very lucky that we kind of came together like Voltron and each had very kind of individuated skills that we could bring to the table. I mean, Matt is a remarkable community builder. Brad is an amazing kind of business strategist and marketer and gamer, is an incredibly talented entrepreneur generally, I would say, and served as CEO and a really talented manager. So we were lucky to to kind of come together. And I would say there were really five of us. I mean, Mimi was a founding team member. And bring that kind of human-centered design aspect, the UX, if you will, and UI of, of General Assembly, which really helped us build the brand. And so I think there was also a lot of luck involved of meeting those people, being in the right place at the right time. I think you can't kind of underestimate luck in, in all of that, right? Yeah, definitely. And luck is one of those topics we see a lot, especially for people who get very successful. What are some of the ways that people or or companies can help increase their luck when they're trying to succeed? 
Yeah. I mean, at the risk of repeating myself, I mean, hard work really matters, right? One of my mentors always says, like, if you're looking for work, it's on your desk. And it's really just kind of ticking off one task at a time and taking one step at a time and execution. And if if you live those values and you execute well and you put in the hours, like the luck takes care of itself. Now, there's also bad luck, right? And so you can do everything right and something might not work. And that's why being able to make mistakes and say you're sorry and recognize them is incredibly important because you're going to get, you're going to have bad luck in some way at some point, right? It's just unavoidable. Yeah. I mean, bad and good luck are both part of the journey. Um, So, you know, I completely agree with your point on hard work. But shortly after you sold General Assembly in 2014, you started Assemble Brands. For those in the audience who might not be familiar with it, what is Assemble Brands and what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Sure. So Assemble Brands, really, we partner with emerging companies and provide working capital and business insights and professional network to help scale businesses. And, you know, we've been lucky to incubate the number of successful companies like General Assembly, Assemble Brands Capital, which provides financing to e-commerce businesses, a luxury fashion brand called Kate, and a software services business called Artium. So, so really what we do is like build businesses. I would say the initial insight and what excited me was, I suppose, what I would call kind of the Shopify economy of basically having all of these tools and and software tools to enable small businesses to create products in the case of Shopify and figuring out kind of how to be a part of that movement really excited me. And and that's the journey we've been on in, in, in developing a number of different companies. Yeah, for sure. And back in the day, when we speak of retail fashion brands, they were built through a process where retailers would buy the goods at wholesale prices. The manufacturer would then obtain a loan from the bank to purchase the goods and deliver them. But now retailers are pushing the risk back onto the brand because they can't make those kinds of guarantees anymore. So we've seen a massive shift in how that's done with the popularity of the internet with rising apps such as TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts, and like you mentioned with Shopify, how that's also changed. On the plus side, brands now have the opportunity to have higher margin by selling to direct to consumer, though banks are less likely to loan out the money because it's more more risky now to do so. So how does Assembled Brands help solve this problem? Well, I'm I'm enormously impressed with your research. I'll tell you that much. You're getting kind of wonky in the world of factoring, which is exactly what you're describing in the way that retail has worked for a very, very long time. So really in building brands and building a brand called Kate, spelled K-H-A-I-T-E, which is probably one of the, the leading American luxury brands, we realized that access to capital was was quite difficult because most small businesses are not venture businesses. They're what the venture world would pejoratively call lifestyle businesses, which I take issue with and is, is a separate conversation. But the way that lifestyle businesses need to be funded is not through venture capital. It's typically through a less dilutive means of financing. And banks don't really love to do that. So the idea of empowering creators of products who are using all of these tools to build niche brands that spoke to niche communities was really exciting. And so that's how we ended up 
partnering with a, a firm called Oak Tree, run by an enormously inspirational founder named Howard Marks, to start providing credit to these small brands who were looking to build equity value for the founders. And that's uh, really what what motivated that and what we do now. And we've now got over a hundred brands in, in the portfolio. And it's, it's just a, a very exciting time in the consumer brand world. Yeah. And especially in retail, it can be really important to have those unit economics start out from day one. So how can retail companies start focusing on their unit economics and get those down? It's a great question. Counterintuitively, I actually think it's pricing for wholesale. It, it's, it's being able to sell through other distributors and ensuring that you still have the margin. Because when you do go direct, whether you're building a store like Kate has done at 165 Mercer or an online store, you can capture those additional margin gains. I think one of their biggest mistakes is trying to go direct too fast and say, oh, we'll take a we'll take less margin on direct or what would look like a wholesale margin. And eventually they need to sell through wholesale. So their margins end up even further compressed. So again, I know kind of like a, a technical answer, but I think making sure that your product company works selling through wholesale distribution is like a really important insight. It also, by the way, helps you market your company, right? Because people going in stores can can see your product. So it can get your product out in the world. You, you can get some purchase orders still. While there won't be a lot of them, like some people will be willing to take a bet on you and to buy some of your products and buy some of your goods. And those can be factored. In other words, you can get loans against those. And that is a way to access capital. And that can be a virtuous cycle because then people might go to your Instagram or they might go to your website and they might buy again there if your product is really good and people want to be repeat purchasers. Yeah, definitely. And what are probably some of the largest issues or problems that brands are coming to you guys for help? Well, I think I think that there are kind of a couple of aspects of building brands that can be difficult. There's the infrastructure aspect of like, what software tools should we be using? How should we be distributing our product directly into wholesale, right? Then there's the kind of capital needs to actually build and grow the brands. And then the the insights of like, how am I doing? Like, am I doing well? And like, where's the context for that? And so we can provide a lot of that context because we see so much. We can provide a lot of recommendations on infrastructure because we see so many companies. And we can also provide capital and a network to those entrepreneurs. So I would say it's really in the combination of those things that we're able to these founders of, of consumer products brands. Gotcha. And as we wrap it up here, what would be some of your top takeaways for the audience and maybe next generation founders that might be listening to the show? I mean, my top takeaway by far is to focus on values and to focus on process because some things in life work and some things in life don't. But if you work incredibly hard, if you build trust with the people around you, if you're curious and you love to learn, you make good judgments, those values have extraordinary hidden leverage. And I have found that it's not, that's not incredibly obvious, particularly to young people. It certainly wasn't to me. 
because I was so focused on achievement of outcomes, right? And it was kind of all about the outcome as opposed to the process and as opposed to the people and as opposed to the values. And so really, really focusing on those things, which are not easy to focus on, right? Those things get tested daily. Those values get tested daily. And and to really stick to those, I, I think that in the end, everything works out very well for people who do. Yeah, definitely. It's all about doing the work and trusting the process. And if you enjoy it, that only makes it a lot better, especially when you're building a company. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. We'll have a link to Assembled Brand posted in the episode description down below for anyone interested in checking it out. Thank you, Adam, very much for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me and congrats on all of your success. I appreciate it.